Father, I thank you for the way that you treat us far better than we deserve by your grace, by your mercy, that you deal with us. You also deal with us, Lord, with discipline. And we thank you for your discipline in our lives. Because, Lord, as you tell us in your word, your sons and daughters, you discipline us that we might share your holiness. No discipline is pleasant, but afterwards it yields the, feast, uh, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Lord, I thank you also for allowing us to be able to give today of our resources. Thank you for giving us uh, the, the ability to, to get wealth. That's what your word tells us. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to just give it to you, a portion of what really belongs to you anyway. I pray, Father, that you help us take these monies representing our labors uh, to do the things that you call this church to do, to give the gospel to the lost, to make disciples, and then to live together in love and unity, and then to reach out to our community to meet the needs there. And so, Lord, I pray now that your Holy Spirit will teach us, lead us, guide us. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to pass the test that will, be, that will be before us today. And we'll thank you for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after pausing for a couple of weeks from the Corinthian correspondence, we have returned to our regularly scheduled series. And some of you, I'm sure, are glad about that because some of you probably are still confused about, you know, what we talked about over Pentecost. But I do hope that some of what you learned, some of what we learned from Pentecost series was helpful. I know it was helpful to me. It opened my eyes to a whole lot of great things. But a little sneak peek, though, as time goes on, we're going to be returning back to some of Mike Heiser's stuff. Because after we finish this series, the Corinthian Correspondence, in a few weeks, then we are going to go into another series called The Gospel According to Moses. And uh, that title is not original with me, but I think it really fits because there's a lot of great stuff in what we're going to be talking about. And the Heiser approach will help us to make a lot of sense out of what we're going to be seeing uh, in this series. But that is not today. Some of you are saying, praise God for that. I'm glad. We're <laughs> we are at the tail end of our Corinthian correspondence. And after today, we're going to have two more messages to tie things up with this whole thing, First and Second Corinthians, and to include what has become somewhat of a tradition that we have done over the last couple of times when we've gone through a book. And we, and we call it the whatever it is in a nutshell. So part of, our, part of our mission statement is that we learn the Bible. And nutshells help us to do just that. But have you ever wondered what happened to the churches that the Scripture writers would write their letters to? Take Paul's letter to the Philippians, for example. He wrote them a great letter. It's wonderful. Thank you for what you've done, etc. Have you ever wondered if they actually went on with the Lord? Have you ever wondered what they did with that letter as Paul gave them? You know, usually we kind of go through it. It's like, hey, what's it for me? What's in it for me, you know? But what happened to them? Next week, I want us to walk through some fascinating things in the Corinthian church. There are writings that help us to understand these things. Things that let us in on how the Corinthians responded to Paul's third visit that we're going to talk about today. So come next week to be equipped and to be encouraged to more fully understand and apply the entire Corinthian correspondence, first and second Corinthians. But today, though, we're going to talk about tests, as in like taking a test. Now, those in high school and on down, we know something about tests, or you do. If you remember way back when you were in high school, we all know something about tests, don't we? Tests are ugly words, aren't they? <laughs> okay. Tests are dreaded words. And tests are religious things. No kidding. Let me explain. See, with all this talk about the separation of church and state in our country, which does not appear in our Constitution anywhere, right? You knew that, right? Taking tests can be a religious act. I've heard it said, as long as there are final tests, there will be prayer in school. <laughs> and when we graduate high school and move on to college or the military 
or even maybe a trade school, guess what? There will be more tests. But unlike high school, taking these tests is a little bit different. We have a little bit of an attitude, a change of an attitude. See, many of us want to take these tests. We have an incentive to pass them for a couple reasons. The first is because we pay money for these courses. And we want to pass these tests so we can get the tests in the rear view so we don't have to pay the, te- pay the money again to take that test again. And then second, when we pass our courses of study, what then? We get the degree. We get the certificate. It's that piece of paper that basically says, now you can search for a job. Isn't that great? And this on to yet another test. Think resume. Think job interviews, and on and on and on. And those of us who have had been, been laid off from a job or whatever and had to go look for another job, we know that even looking for a job can be a full-time job. But in our passage for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 14, we're going to look at Paul's encouragement and warning of his beloved Corinthians or to his beloved Corinthians about a test. And this test is not to pass a course. It is not to prepare for promotion. It goes far beyond that. It is the most important test that anybody could ever take. Literally, eternity hangs in the balance depending on the outcome of this test for the person. So let's jump into 2 Corinthians 13, 1 to 4, as we see Paul giving the Corinthians what I call a pre-test Warning, pre-test warning, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 4. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence or two of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Now, Paul is here saying, in as loud of a way as he could, with parchment and ink, warning, warning. If Paul could kind of transport himself here, or if email could be transported back, here's how the email would look. All caps, bold, and underlined. Paul is warning them here about their sin and the gravity of their sin. But I'm going to ask the question, why? Why is Paul concerned about their sin? Why not the leadership of the church? Why aren't they dealing with the sin of the Corinthians? In short, from what I can tell, the leadership is not doing their job. Let's not forget, 2 Corinthians is not the first time that Paul interacted with the Corinthians. Let me give you just a few of the problems that we covered in 1 and 2 Corinthians. For example, a divided congregation due to powerful personalities. They saw ongoing sexual sin as a point of pride, sexual sin that even their pagan neighbors found disgusting. Look at how progressive we are, they would say. We just love everybody. Well, what kind of love are we talking about? Let's continue. Fighting between church folk was out there for the entire world to see. Church member going to law court against church members, suing one another. And not only did the leadership allow sin and disunity to run unchecked, they even tolerated false teaching. Some who were attached to the church actually denied the teaching of their bodily resurrection. Remember Paul telling them in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then where's Christ? He's still in the grave. And we have no hope of salvation if that is true. And all of this was in just Paul's first letter. <laughs> Let's go on to the second 
The second letter had to do with the leadership not guarding the purity of the truth. So false teachers were coming in. They were bringing to the Corinthians a false gospel. And that's largely what was behind Paul's writing, 2 Corinthians. The false teachers kept lying to Paul about his friend and his friends and were beginning to win the Corinthians over to their way of thinking, to their brand of religion, a gospel that does not save. Paul even called these guys as being in league with Satan himself. That's not very politically correct, not very nice, but that's what Paul did. He called them out like that. So I'll ask again, where are the shepherds in the church of Corinth? Apparently, nowhere to be found. Now, there's a lot I can say about this, and I'm sure that if we had a little testimony time, you can kind of give your perspectives about the churches of our day where there's a lack of real shepherds, but we need to go on. Paul was the real pastor in, first, in, in Corinthians with real Christ-like love for them. Now, you know, Paul knew a thing or two about love, didn't he? He literally wrote the book on love, right? 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest statement, the greatest description of love ever penned anywhere, either secular or religious literature. That's what the, the vast majority of people say. And Christ-like love compelled Paul to deal with the ongoing sin of those who attached themselves to the church in Corinth. Now, this compulsion to deal with sin was a solemn, extremely serious deal with Paul. He sets this chapter up by essentially quoting Deuteronomy 19.15. And in this passage, he's talking some serious stuff here. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this command in Deuteronomy has something to do with crimes committed within the community. Now, why would Paul say that? Why would he quote Deuteronomy? Paul considered his visits also to be the witnesses that he needs to deal with their sin, their spiritual crimes. Paul considered what was happening, the, the, the sin that was running rampant in the church in Corinth, spiritual crimes. And now in verse 2, Paul says that he will not spare those who sinned. He, he, wants to, he wants to call them out. He wants to deal with this. But now, we might want to look and we say, you know, Paul, preacher of grace, what about grace here? You know, aren't you being just a little bit harsh? You know, God's people still sin, you know. We're not perfect. Now, it does seem, though, that there is no room for grace here if we read the English. But if we knew the original language, we would clearly see the problem because the word sinned in verse 2 carries with it with a meaning that goes something like this. You had sinned and you had not stopped. In other words, you are unrepentant in your sin. That's literally what it means here. In other words, those whom Paul promised to deal with as an exercising church discipline, they were living in unrepentant sin. Not just one strike and you're gone. No, unrepentant sin is what we're talking about here. You know, again, you know, we think about church discipline. We think about, you know, Matthew chapter 18. If that person lives in unrepentant sin, we need to go to that person. We have responsibility in love to do that. But let me briefly make two points before we move on. First, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 to 4 comes right after 2 Corinthians 12, 21. Isn't that good? You like that? Just flows right there, doesn't it? Now, it's pretty obvious, but when was the last time we were in 2 Corinthians? It's about three weeks ago. So we kind of forget, don't we, what was going on here? So let's, re let's review the context. What was in Paul's heart when he wrote 2 Corinthians 13? Well, 2 Corinthians 12, right? So let's read together 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21. It's right above 2 Corinthians 13. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul is 
anticipating, dreading almost, he was going to have to mourn over them. Church discipline was a painful thing for Paul. It was not fun for him. And remember what happened before he wrote 2 Corinthians. If you were with us for a while, you know this. And if you've been studying, if you haven't been with us, you know something happened with Paul. That Paul paid an unexpected visit to the Corinthians after he wrote 1 Corinthians and dealt with them. He blasted some of them, especially one church leader for allowing false teachers to have the influence there. And after he'd left with guns blazing and just all kinds of spiritual carnage in his wake, his conscience, his heart was smitten. And so he began to feel great pain in his heart, so much so that he began to write a letter. He wrote a letter stained with many tears. So church discipline was something that Paul did not relish, but he found it necessary at times to do so. And in our day, any pastor in any church trying to be faithful to the Lord's ways feels the same way. It is painful, but if it is needed, it must be done. And I think about the most difficult times of my life have been right here as Grace United, as your pastor, having to have dealt with church discipline. And some of you have assisted me in this painful process. It wasn't fun, was it? Those of you guys who remember. Now, I shared a few weeks ago about John MacArthur's take on church growth. His take is that church growth is built on the foundation of the holiness of God. It's not built on getting our name out there. It's not built on having the glitz and the glamour. It's not built on smoke machines and light shows and all that kind of stuff or whatever the music might be of the day. No, the holiness of God is what really the key is to church growth as God defines church growth. And what is the mechanism to maintain the holiness of God in His church? Church discipline. It's painful, but that's what it is. Again, the growth may not be an increase in numbers. It may be a decrease in numbers. But when church discipline is accomplished in the way it needs to be done, what will happen? It will result in the growth of God's favor on the local assembly. And I would much rather have the favor of God upon an assembly with a few than with little to no of God's favor with a whole lot, wouldn't you? I'm... I'm convinced that you are that way as well. And so we need to pray for increased holiness here at Grace United. And if need be, to exercise the painful but necessary process of church discipline. And so for Paul, exercising church discipline with the unrepentant was something he would rather not have to do, but it was necessary nonetheless. The second point here is that Paul was trying to persuade the Corinthians, once again, that he had the authority of Christ, unlike the false teachers whose only authority they had was the authority of Satan. And this is the main point of verses 3 and 4. Time and time again, Paul was locked in a battle with the false teachers. And let me remind us, real false teaching is spiritual cyanide. You know what cyanide is, right? It's what they use, the, the gas chambers. It's not just a little you know, kind of like a little disagreement here or there. No, it kills people. That's what false teaching does. I'm not talking about finer points of Scripture, okay? I'm not talking about some things that we can all, you know, agree to disagree on, like, for example, the timing of the rapture. When's the rapture going to happen? Some people think it's going to be before the tribulation. Some people in the middle. Some people pre-wrath. Some people afterward. We're quibbling over what? Seven years. That's it. But we know Jesus is coming back. And that is the thing we must all agree on. But we're talking about the things that matter when it comes to false teaching versus true teaching, like who Jesus really is. That's key. That's important. And what salvation really is and what it takes to go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that is key. That's vital. That's all important. We must agree on these things. And false teachers pervert this, and that is spiritual cyanide. And so Paul continued to hammer away at just how he was the one who gave the Corinthians the truth, not the false teachers. 
And why is that? Because the Corinthians, in the words of Elijah the prophet, said to them, basically, how long will you halt between two opinions? You're going to go with false teachers or you can go with me. See, the Corinthians, they, they were attracted by the flesh, even those in the church, because these false teachers, they were showy. They were flashy. They were dynamic. They had it all together. And they were after the money of the Corinthians. But Paul was none of these things. His ministry toward them was that of a servant. Here again, Paul's mindset toward them in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Bottom line here is that Paul was more than willing to deal with their sin because the love of Christ that was in him, it constrained him to do so. And he was ready to call them out and exercise church discipline. But he would much rather not do that, as he said even in verse 4, for we are also weak in him. He would rather really want to be warm and affectionate, not to be the heavy. But he says we will live with him by the power of God if we have to. We will come and we will call them out and we will exercise the church discipline, painful though it may be. So having sounded the pre-test warning in verses 1 to 4, Paul now issues the test itself in verses 5 to 10, 2 Corinthians 13. He says, examine yourselves. Again, who's he speaking to? Church folk or non-church folk? Church folk. And he says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you or among you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. How sobering are these words. You realize, my friends, when the words of this test were spoken, they were spoken to exactly one church, Corinthian church. But again, it was a church that Paul was speaking these words, writing these words to. We read the words of warning to a number of churches in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples. The Lord Jesus, through John, told the church in Sardis these things. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. Yeah, you're popular in the community. It's great, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. And Paul warned the Galatians, you were severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Again, these are churches, churches that God, through the pen of the apostles, are writing. These, indeed, are stern warnings. But here in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul is offering them, it seems, one final opportunity to turn. He says, examine yourselves, test yourselves. It's as if Paul is saying, okay, one more time, Corinthians, where does your loyalty lie? Does it lie with the false teachers who are speaking the false stuff and a gospel they cannot save? Or are you to bring your loyalties to me? So let me break this down here. First, by pointing out some things that may not be obvious. Notice the plurals here. This isn't singular, plurals. Examine yourselves to see whether you literally, y'all, are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do y'all not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in or among y'all, unless indeed y'all fail to meet the test. See, we kind of miss this in English, but he's talking plural here. He's talking to everybody in the church. 
Notice Paul's task here is not primarily given to individuals in the church, but it definitely does apply to individuals in the church. Again, Paul was calling the church as a whole to stand for the truth. His warning came with a challenge. As a church in Corinth, Paul was saying, prove that Jesus Christ is still your Lord. And you do that by getting rid of the false teachers that were living there with them. Now, it's been said that the Lord will not go where He's not wanted. I think there's some truth to that. For example, think of the church in Laodicea. Again, the church in Laodicea. After Jesus dictated to John to write that they had no need of Jesus, because in that they said they had need of nothing, apparently the presence of Jesus slipped out the door. We need to go to Revelation 3.20 to look at this in our Bible. Revelation 3.20. We know it. We've heard it. We may have quoted it even in evangelism, but that's not what it's talking about here. Revelation 3.20. Church of Laodicea. Jesus says through John, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Door of the church fellowship. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with me and eat with him. Jesus was outside of the door of the assembly. That's the point. And inside, no one noticed. He was a really wealthy church, probably attractive to many. The assembly had the finest of everything. Certainly, if somebody had a need physically, that they would meet that need. They didn't offend anybody. It was probably a very comfortable place to be. But who was missing? Because they felt no need for the Lord Jesus, he just left. Literally, he had been standing outside the assembly for a while. That's what that word means. I had been there. I'm standing at the door. I had been there. I'm continuing to be here. I've been here for a while. I'm continuing to knock. And he knocks. And he knocks. Who will hear the Lord? Who will turn toward the door and let Jesus in to have fellowship with him? At this point, no one was. The Laodicean church suffered great loss. Would you agree? The Corinthian church was at the same crossroads. They were getting ready to be there. Would they experience the loss of the Lord's presence? I think of what is happening today in a number of churches. How many churches have the Lord standing outside their door and people not even noticing? I could go on all day about this, and you can too, I'm sure. But let me give you just one illustration now, I don't know how many there are, but let me give you um, just an outlandish example of what I'm talking about in our day. It's called LMX, Liberation Methodist Connection. The United Methodist Church is due to break up into four factions within the next 18 months or so. If it hadn't been for COVID, they probably would have already done it. But now there's one faction that has apparently already done this about nine months ago. Liberation Methodist Connection is a real piece of work. I got this off their website, and here's what they say. Let me tell you a little bit about what they're about. We are a grassroots denomination of former, current, and non-Methodist faith leaders working on the unfolding of the kingdom, not kingdom, kingdom, already shows what? This is all us, of God. We are journeying toward a new way of being followers of Christ, I doubt that right there personally. That refute the imbalance of powers, principalities, and privileges that has plagued Methodism, which are as follows. Colonialism, white supremacy, economic injustices, patriarchy, sexism, clericalism, ableism, ageism, transphobia, and heteronormativity. We trust God's presence and our collaborative efforts uh, labors will guide us toward a new, more liberative, I don't even know what that word means, liberative way of answering our calling and being in connection together. 
And by the way, the word connection is spelled with an X, not a T. It's kind of weird. So I have a question. Where is Jesus in the LMX? Do you think he's in there or he's standing outside the door? I would say he's standing outside the door. But he's still knocking. He's still knocking. Maybe God will have mercy before Jesus actually walks away permanently. Because he can do that, you know. He is a person. May the Lord be pleased to save some from this spiritually corrupt organization. See, Jesus has no qualms about walking away in a place, from a place that does not faithfully represent him. Does he do it all the time? No, praise God. But he has no qualms in doing that. Paul also said to the Corinthians, examine yourselves, test yourselves. Clearly, Paul means for this to be applied personally as well. The Corinthians, and we by extension, are to examine ourselves to see whether we individually are in the faith. This is indeed the most important test we will ever take. Heaven and hell are at stake, definitely. And God will glorify Himself, regardless of where a person, whether a person passes the test or not, as we know. If a person goes to heaven, then God will glorify Himself by exercising and displaying His grace and His mercy. If a person goes to hell, if Jesus sends that person to hell, which is what Scripture says, then God will glorify Himself with His justice and His righteousness and His holiness. Either way, God will be glorified. But as we know, tragically, even though people will wind up in hell, it was not made for people. Hell was not made for people. It was made for the devil and his angels. Also, God, through Peter, told us it is not his will that any perish, any perish, but that all would come to repentance. In other words, God would much rather save people for heaven than to condemn people to hell. Christ died so that we would not have to suffer the wrath of God. And so how do you, how do I know that we pass the test by following the true Jesus. And this shows itself in two ways. First, we need to be sure it's the true Jesus, true Jesus that you and I are following. There have always been many people down the ages since Jesus was on earth physically who've claimed to be Jesus, right? We know this. But which one is the right one? The one proclaimed in Scripture. See, the true Jesus is the sinless Son of the living God, second person of the Trinity, clothed with humanity, 100% God, 100% man in the same person at the same time. As the second person of the Trinity, He was the agent of creation. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. The true Jesus is the Messiah, born of the Virgin Mary, died on a cross, was raised three days after he died, ascended to the Father's right hand, and one day will return to judge the living and the dead. This, my friends, is the only true Jesus. Only this Jesus can save us from our sins. No other. And so to pass the test, we have to follow the correct Jesus. But there's another part to the test. We must follow the correct Jesus. Follow. We understand this. We are to be loyal to Him. None of us are perfect. We know this. But we're to be loyal to Him. Now, as a husband, my privilege on the day that my beloved and I got married 42 years ago, I made a pledge to her that I would be loyal to her. I would be loyal to keep my wedding vows to her. Now, anybody who's married or was married or is liable to be married, that covers just about everybody here, doesn't it? Loyalty does not mean perfection. You don't have to ask her right now, but if you were to ask my beloved, 
have I been perfect in the marriage? She probably would say no. I've, I've been wrong at least once in my life. And it's the same way with Jesus in our relationship with him. We are to loyally follow Jesus, not perfectly, loyally. But now, loyalty is not the same as license to sin. And I think this is where we kind of get confused here. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 7, 23, when he tells us that many people will depart from him because he will tell them, depart from me, Matthew 7, 23. And he's, he gives a reason why he's going to tell them this. He's not going to say, hey, you guys who call me Lord, Lord, I'm not going to tell you to go away. He's going to tell them to go away for a reason. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, when somebody practices something, what does it mean? It's the intention of getting better. Jesus is saying what? You who practice getting better at lawlessness. In other words, we can correctly identify who the correct Jesus is. Many will refer to him as Lord on the day of judgment. In fact, they say, Lord, Lord, for emphasis here. But he will tell them to go away because their way of life did not change. See, we are saints who occasionally sin. We are increasing in our holiness to the Lord. But see, these who Jesus will send away, they practice lawlessness as a way of life. See, they were practicing lawlessness as a way of life before they acknowledged Jesus as Lord, and they continue to do so. They didn't change. Their lives reflected a contradiction. They proclaimed Jesus as Lord, but it was they who stayed on their own throne. See, when we make room for the king, we need to remove our posterior from the seat. We take our rightful place at the feet of the one who was pierced for us. So this morning, I have a challenge for all of us. We need to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. We need to make sure that we are following the correct Jesus. We also need to make sure that we are loyally following Him as well. And we can look at it like this. The ultimate being in the universe, the ultimate being is inviting us to have a love relationship eternally with Him. That's what it's all about. See, the only thing that we deserve from Him is His wrath. And He would be perfectly justified in pouring it out on us. Isn't that right? But the King desires our loyalty to Him. He is willing to salvage our lives now and for eternity. But it is our turn to respond to this gracious, merciful invitation. In a few moments, I'm going to make a challenge. I'm going to ask us to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. We need to make sure we're committed to the correct Jesus, and we need to make sure that we are loyally following the correct Jesus. But time marches on, and so does this message. Don't have any time to get into verses 6 to 10, so let me just sum up what Paul is saying here. Paul reminds the Corinthians again that they really do have a choice to make. The Corinthians will show Paul that they believe that he has failed the test if they choose to go by the way of the false teachers rather than his way, which is the truth. But in the end, though he does not want to be heavy-handed in the use of his authority that the Lord gave him, he will do it if he needs to. Now, having seen Paul giving his pre-test warning and his issuing of the challenge to examine themselves to see if they really are in the faith, now he turns his attention to what we can call rightly a post-test celebration. These are true Christians now. In verses 11 to 14, he says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Truly say, brothers, sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In a word, Paul is now telling those who have passed the examination to joyfully live out their loyal commitment to Christ in the ways he's listed. 
Obviously, there's so much more here, but these, by the Spirit, the Lord inspired Paul to write these things down. Rejoice, he says. It's a command. It's a command. Paul says it well in Philippians 4, 4, when he says, rejoice where and rejoice how? In the Lord, not in circumstances, not in the social economic status we have or lack thereof, not in the material things we have, not in the good, circum- or, or good experiences that we have, but rejoice in the Lord. He says, aim for restoration. Literally, make it their aim to become mature in Christ. And to use a very old army slogan by the power of spirit, be all you can be for the Lord. Then notice a string of actual or implied one another's. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace with one another. And what probably amounts to the remnant believers in the church in Corinth, when God's people are faithfully applying the one another's, what happens? He is pleased to draw near in manifest presence. The God of love and peace will be with you. What a way to live as God's people. Would you agree? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Huh. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not into kissing everybody here, right? We need to take into account the culture of what Paul was talking about. See, the holy kiss is something that we in this culture don't do. We do things like holy handshakes or holy hugs, but we, do, we don't do holy kisses here. The point is that we show one another affection in culturally appropriate ways. Then notice verse 13, all the saints greet you. What a great statement that is. In brief, the body of Christ is bigger than the local assembly. But sometimes we can almost tend to live as though that we're the only ones, right? Sometimes. Let's make sure that when, that when we do fellowship with other churches, though, we need to make sure that the other fellowships, other churches, are following the correct Christ and loyally following the correct Christ. And finally, Paul gives a typical benediction. Notice it's a Trinitarian benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen. And there is 2 Corinthians at the end of the Corinthian correspondence. So today as a church, think about what happened here. All the arguments, all the battle that Paul had with the false teachers, and they were still at the crossroads. So what happened to them? Is there a 2 Corinthians chapter 14? <laughs> no. Do we know? What became of them? Did Paul's letters and visit have any effect on the Corinthians? Or did they just fade into oblivion? Or they just kind of sort of reabsorbed into the culture? Or did some really go on with the Lord and become a mighty force for the Lord in that wicked town? If it's not the most wicked city, it was certainly one of the most wicked cities in the entire Roman Empire. Tune in next week for some of the answers. And I think we'll be able to, to, uh, to answer some of those things. But right now, though, I want us to take a few moments to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Of course, that's Paul's way of challenging them and us to see whether we have placed our faith in Christ and all that means. See, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that we are saved by grace through faith. God offers his grace in Christ and we place our faith in him. Grace and faith are both vital here. The only thing that we deserve from God, holy God, is wrath. But in Christ, he offers us his grace. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin of salvation is faith. Everybody has faith. Do you know that? The choice that we make is, what's our object? Some place their faith in an object called the false Jesus or false religion, and they're lost, and they're condemned. Others place their faith in the true Jesus, and they're saved. The point is that every one of us has placed our faith in something or someone. Into what object have you placed your faith? 
If it's a true Jesus, then let's show that we have plugged our faith into him by loyally living out what he wants us to do and to be, by loyally following him and his ways. If the object of our faith is something else, it will show. So as you can see, we have a little different decor today, right? The cross is here and not there, and that's for a reason. Those of us who've been here for a while, we know that rarely it is that we do altar calls. But this morning, or afternoon, we just switched over, yes. Uh, we are going to have a good old-fashioned altar call. If Paul, through his writings, basically demanded that they have an altar call to examine themselves, I think it's important that we do the same. Now, when it comes to the mechanics of this, um, we're going to spend a moment in silence, and we're going to ask the Lord, Lord, where am I? Who am I really following? Have I really placed my faith in you, Lord Jesus, the true and living God in the flesh, my Savior, the Savior of the world? Have I placed my faith there? Am I really sure about this? If I'm not, help me. Help me. I make that declaration today. I repent, and I come to you. Now, you can do that in your seat. You can do that here, and that's why there's some room here to come to the cross, literally, if you want to. After a moment, then we will, uh, then I will have a prayer. I'll verbalize prayer. And then after I verbalize prayer, we'd have the music team come up. All the while, we remain in an attitude of prayer. And so if, if you need someone to pray with, I'll be here. You can come to the cross. And then after uh, the music team finishes their song, you know, if, if you're not actively praying or the Lord's not, as it were, doing something in your life, then sing along with, with, the, uh, with the team. But uh, after the music gets finished, if you want to continue praying, that's great. Um, so let's take our fellowship outside. You know, normally we hang around here, and it's a wonderful thing. But uh, this time, let's make this a holy moment for those who want to. So it makes sense? Okay, so let's now go to the Lord, and let's ask Him. Because this is the... most important test we could ever make. We must be sure about this. We must be. It doesn't matter whether we've been at Grace United. It doesn't matter we've been anywhere else. This is the most important test. This is the most important moment. So let's make sure, begging the Lord, asking Him that we are in the faith, following the correct Jesus, Loyally, not perfectly, but loyally following him. Let's ask the Lord to do business today. Almighty God, in moments like these, it's hard to even have words. We recognize, Lord, if only just for maybe a Just a distant glimpse of who you are. We cannot approach you on our own. We are sinful. We have a nature that's bent towards sin and away from you. There are evil forces in the heavenly places that are influencing us and even controlling nations. And Lord, we are called to wrestle against those. How can we? Lord, the crushing weight of our sin needs to be felt. Because Lord, we won't come to you any other way. Lord, you told us in your word the truth, and I thank you for the truth. None of us seeks you. The God who is love, we don't seek you. We would much rather have our own way, even if it means our own destruction. 
Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ. Second person of the Godhead Trinity. The one who stepped out of heaven and took on flesh. Who felt every pang, every lash, the spikes in the hands and the feet. crown of thorns, the mocking, and then Father, we don't get it, we don't understand it, that it was, it pleased you to crush him for our sake, for the sake of being the substitute to die for sin. We don't get it, Lord. We don't understand it. But in gratitude, we want to follow you. Or at least I want to follow you, Lord. You give everyone that choice. That's why Paul said, we need to examine to see whether we're in the faith. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that by your spirit, that if, if we have been deceived, if we have lied to ourselves, thinking that we are saved, but we're really not, that we have placed our faith in something, a, um, a caricature of who you are, or, um, or an idol, something that kind of looks like you but really isn't you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would reveal that to us because, Lord, we want to follow you. We want to live loyally to you in your presence. And, Lord, when we, when we blow it, when we sin, may your spirit get all over us, convicting us that we may quickly confess and repent. And Lord, we know that we can't confess and repent just because you're nice and you don't forgive us just because you're nice, but Lord, because you hung on the cross for us. May that be our deterrent. Help us, Lord Jesus, to follow you because we love you, because you loved us first. So Lord, I pray that now as the music team comes, that you will help us. Help us to sing. May we go out of here and rejoicing in the salvation that you've given us. But Lord, for others, I pray that you would give us the freedom in our hearts and, and spirit to be able to sit for a while as you are dealing with us. Help us, Lord, not to let this moment pass by too quickly. Lord, this is the most important thing we could ever do right now. Please help us to have that assurance. And we'll give you thank you for what you are doing in our lives and what you will. In Jesus' name.